for those of you that, that have heard me preach for the last several years, you will be able to affirm this statement. At times, I can be a bit of a, what I call a tangent preacher. What I mean by that is that I'm preaching and suddenly my brain thinks of something and I may go off in that direction. And I'll even say things like, where was I going with that? Or this has nothing to do with the story, but I just thought I would tell you. Now, I don't think I do it quite as often as I used to. That might be in part because we're filming and so they edit me and clean me all up. But Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, almost feel like that type of story within the book of Acts. Luke shares a, a beautiful statement about the unity of, of prayer in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer. And it seems like the natural response to that would be Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, which then says, and they were all joined together, and they were all together on the day of Pentecost. They were all united together on the day of Pentecost. A, a statement of prayer about unity of prayer, and then the result of that is being all together when the day of Pentecost came. And yet that's not where Luke takes the story. They were all joined together constantly in prayer, and then there is almost this story that seems like a side thought. I refer to it as a side thought because within this story, there are two new characters introduced to us. Two characters that, that we have never met in the Bible before. Joseph, called Barsabbas, or also known as Justice. Barsabbas means son of the Sabbath, so likely he was born on the Sabbath. And then another gentleman by the name of Matthias. And in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 15, it reads, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then Luke adds this parenthetical statement. Verses 18 and 19 were not a part of, of Peter's original speech. They are parenthetical statements in which Luke is giving context to hearers that may not know the story. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. That's one of the reasons why we know this was a parenthetical statement, because, because Luke here is translating an Aramaic word to people that would not know Aramaic, but if it was Peter's statement, he wouldn't need to translate it because he was with a group of people that knew Aramaic. But then Peter's uh, speech continues in verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Verse 23, so they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two have cho you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. 
a random story. That's the end of the story. And it's random because two new persons are introduced, Joseph and Matthias, and then they are nowhere else in the book of Acts. And not only are they nowhere else in the book of Acts, they're not mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible. And even history itself, Eusebius and Josephus and these say almost nothing about them other than that they were part of the original 70 that Jesus sent out. This story, to me, feels like that story in the group. You, you, you've been there where there's a group of people talking and everyone is sharing a, a story that kind of builds off of someone else's story. There, there's, there's the kind of the general narrative. You're talking about a subject and everyone's talking about it. Oh, this and this. Oh yeah, one time this happened to me. And oh yeah, one time this happened to me. And then there's that one person in the group that just wants to say something just for the sake of saying something. And they tell a story. And at the end of their story, everyone pauses and kind of looks at them like, uh, what did that have to do with anything? You been there? If you've never been there, Maybe you were that person that did that. I know I've been that person that has done that. But as I studied this passage, what I realized is this, that although many commentators skip right over it, although many books that, that, that are specifically written about the book of Acts choose not to cover this part of the Scriptures, even though Ellen White herself has only four sentences directly addressing Matthias in her hundreds of thousands of sentences. Even though that's the case, I do see a point to this story. Here is what I believe we can find in this random, often ignored story. Here's what I believe we can find for us. Luke is in this story adding two more attributes, two more important attributes to the foundation of the church. First, he's actually giving us a model for how the church should work, how the church should function, how the church should make decisions, the principles by which decisions should be made. And secondly, this story, and this is even more important to me, underlines the theological thrust of the church. I'll start with the former, the operational principles by which I believe all leaders, including myself, should be held accountable. It is truly a model. It's, it's a formula. And while at times we don't want to get formulaic and, and copy every minute detail about what they do in the Scriptures, this, this model is a good model for us to pay attention to. And here is the model. Prayer, Scripture, common sense, prayer, and trust. That's the model for decision-making that is laid, the foundation for decision-making laid in this text. Prayer, Scripture, common sense, prayer, and trust. I got this from one of the commentators, John Stott, that actually does spend some time on this passage. Stott actually only provides the first four steps. Scripture, common sense, prayer, and then he doesn't call it trust. He calls it a decision. I call it trust. But I believe that there's a step before those four. And, and that comes from verse 14 in the text. 
They all joined together. This is speaking of Peter and all the rest of the apostles. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Peter is with the other apostles praying when it is impressed upon him that a new leader must be chosen. The best decisions grow out of a season of prayer. They grow out of, of the spirit of prayer, of, of leaders praying together and praying, of course, by themselves as well. It says that Peter, in those days, what were those days? Those days were when they were joined together in praying, all united together in prayer. In those days, while they were all united together in prayer, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, we need to replace Judas. And that leads us to our next step. Where did this idea Peter puts forward to replace Judas come from? It comes from Scripture. Peter says, as, as it was prophesied, as it says in the Holy Scriptures, we are to replace Judas. Two times in this little speech, Peter specifically calls upon Scripture, relates Scripture for why they are doing what they are doing. The Scripture had to be fulfilled, he said. It is written in the book of Psalms. These are the first two steps. Out of prayer, an idea is inspired, but that, but that, that idea is, is supported by and justified by and, and influenced by and led by the teachings of Scripture. This seems like a good way for decisions to be made. You're praying. God brings Scripture upon your heart and mind on the direction to go, and you begin to move in that direction. The next step the next step that Peter and the rest of the apostles used was common sense. As John Stott writes, next they used their common sense that if Judas's substitute was to have the same apostolic ministry, he must also have the same qualifications, including an eyewitness experience of Jesus and a personal appointment by him. This sound deductive reasoning led to the nomination of Joseph and Matthias. Common sense. They looked at Scripture, and, and while the Scriptures didn't give them all clarity on exactly what to do, they applied the principles of Scripture. They used their common sense to apply the principles of Scripture within the context of their situation. Listen to this. Ellen G. White, writing about interpreting inspired writings. She was writing about how to understand and how to interpret inspired writings. She said this, God wants all of us God wants us all to have common sense, and He wants us to reason from common sense. How should we understand these scriptures that we're reading and, and, and connect them to our time? God wants us all to have common sense, and He wants us to reason from common sense. They took the scripture, they took the prophecy, they took the principles of the prophecy and the principles of scripture, and they, with their common sense, also led by prayer that they had been doing, they applied it to their context and history and their situation and moved forward. These are the first three steps. You're praying. God leads you in a direction. That direction is affirmed by Scripture. As you examine the Scripture, you look at your situation and, and you use common sense to make the decision. 
And then their fourth step, they went back to prayer. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. By the way, I just love the word that they use there. We've translated it, you know everyone's heart. But they refer to Jesus in this passage as everybody's heart knower. That's what that word actually means, the, the cardiogonostis, everybody's heart knower. Jesus, everybody's heart knower, show us who you have chosen. They pray. Their, pray, their prayer motivates Peter to stand up, to, to, to begin a course of action. That action is confirmed by Scripture. As they look at Scripture, they apply the principles of that Scripture to their, to their situation with common sense. Then they go back and they pray again. Lord, we prayed. We've been led by Scripture. We've used our common sense. But once again, we're asking you who knows all things, who knows our hearts, who knows the hearts of others, to lead us and to guide us. And then, the last step is trust. They cast lots, and they trust the decision that is made. Now, now we don't cast lots in this age, and, and we want to be mindful that we're not saying to follow the, the, the idea of casting lots. In fact, there seems to be no evidence that following this point in the church history that lots were the practice used anymore going forward in, in, the, in the Scriptures. In fact, the reason why people believe this is the case is because immediately following this, they received the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, through prayer, through the leading of Scripture, through the Holy Spirit guiding common sense, through further prayer, then they learn to trust the decision that is made that the Holy Spirit has led and guided that decision. Has led and guided that decision. Folks, what if all of our decisions in church were made this way? Prayer. Is it affirmed by Scripture? Let's use our common sense. Let's pray again. And now let's trust that the Holy Spirit's been with us. How, how much how, how far would the church go without the politicking, without, the, without the, the struggling or striving for power, without the jealousies or, or thinking that we control the position or that, or that we have to have it our way? We prayed. It's been led by Scripture, the principles of Scripture. We use common sense to apply that Scripture to our setting. And we prayed again to ask God to show us our hearts and the hearts of everyone else. And then we trust that the Holy Spirit has led. This seems like a pretty foundational method for doing church and making church decisions. And it's right here in this passage found in the book of Acts chapter 1 verses 15 through 26. But that's only part of the foundation that is put forward in this passage. In fact, I would say that the next part to me is even more significant. It is something even more that I needed to hear myself. Because at the end of verse 22, there's a statement that is given that, that, that shows us the underlying theological drive of the church. What it was then, and I would say what it should be now today. Let's look at Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to start actually in verse 21. 
Therefore, it is necessary to choose one. This is again Peter talking. One of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus was living among us. Verse 22. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these, listen to this. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Of his resurrection. They must become a witness with us of the resurrection. The job description, the singular job description of the apostle in this passage is that they must be a witness of the resurrection. They must go forward to witness and to testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This statement to me shows the theological foundation of the church. N.T. Wright wrote this about the resurrection. If you take away the resurrection, if you take it away from the Acts church, you are left with nothing. He writes, the resurrection defines the church from that day until this day. A church, including the Spencerville church and the Seventh-day Adventist church, is nothing without the emphasis on the resurrection. In fact, I would encourage you at some point in time to go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and, and see what Paul says about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection for us as, as, as followers of Jesus Christ and for our future as, as believers in Christ. I'll summarize the important points out of Paul's writings right here. Without the resurrection, our preaching is in vain. In other words, what I'm doing right now, if there is no resurrection, then there is absolutely no power, no purpose behind what I'm saying. Secondly, without the resurrection, there is no forgiveness. No one has been granted forgiveness from their sins. That's what Paul writes, without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we those who have died believing in Christ have no hope. Without the resurrection, we who are alive and believe in Jesus, Paul says if there's no resurrection, we are to be pitied above all others. Why? Because that would just simply make us fools following a dead man. The resurrection is, is the singular truth that sets Christianity apart. The story reminds us through that simple job description, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection, that the resurrection is the theological drive. It is the message of the church. Jesus is alive. The resurrection was of such significance then because the apostles and early ch church members were calling their neighbors. They, they were calling their co-workers. They were calling their, their family members. They were call, calling strangers to abandon everything to follow Jesus. Why should we follow Jesus? And they said, because he has overcome the grave. He is the only one. Their major thrust, their major appeal is Jesus is alive. From Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, when he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But then this, but God raised him from the dead, 
freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter's very first sermon, why should you listen to us? Well, you saw his miracles. Well, you saw him die. But here's what you need to know. Jesus is alive. Go all the way to the very end of the book of Acts. As Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is asking him basically, are you crazy? Why are you doing this? You're a Roman citizen. You don't have to be in this position. But, but Paul says, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here to testify to small and great alike. He's saying this, what I'm going to tell you is important to, to those who, who are seen as nothing in society and those who are seen as everything in society. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. How is that message of light going to the Jews and to the Gentiles? Only because he's the first to overcome that eternal death. That sacrifice for sins. Peter, how can you know all these things? Jesus is alive. Paul, how do we know you're not crazy? Jesus is alive. And y'all, that should still, that should still be the battle cry of the church today. Jesus is alive. The early church said any leader that does not embrace this, that does not know this truth, that has not even witnessed this truth with their own eyes, cannot be our leader. We must have someone who's been there to the resurrection because they must be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is either the movement which announces God's new creation or it is just another irrelevant religious sect. Do you hear that, y'all? We are either the movement that announces the truth that there is a new creation, that there is a new day, that there is a better day in Jesus Christ, or we are just another irrelevant religious sect. That is what was at stake then, and honestly, folk, that is what is at stake now. The message of the church must still be Jesus rose from the dead, so follow him and become a new creation in Jesus. This last year we have gone through a bruising election season. Don't worry, you're not going to actually hear anything partisan in what I'm about to say. But during election seasons, I don't know about you, but I, I'll speak for me, but I personally sometimes lose sight of what is most important. I become consumed with the ideas and, 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 the, and, the, and the thoughts that I stand by. And I lose thought, sight of what I must do. Proclaim that Jesus is alive. Think about this, y'all. As Christians, we are a group of people that believe that this earth will be made new at one point in time. We are a people that believe that individuals, that human beings, no matter who they are, no matter how great their sin are, no matter what political party they are a part of, that, that they can be made new in Jesus Christ. We are a group of people as believers in Jesus Christ that all the wrong in the world will eventually be made right. I think sometimes we think these things 
will more likely happen through voting or protests or political movements or political candidates or Supreme Court votes, religious liberty organizations or new laws. I know that I forget sometimes what will actually change all things. But none of those things will bring about a new creation. None of those things will, will make a new life in Jesus Christ. None of those things will, will, will protect us from the wicked one and the beast in the last days. The only thing that can give us hope, the only reason for our hope, is Jesus is alive. The church said, this is our thing. We need someone who has this and this because here's the one thing that this apostle must do. They must proclaim and witness to the resurrection that Jesus is alive. And it was their testimony of a risen Savior. It was, it was Peter's sermon of a risen Savior. It was Stephen's testimony of a risen Savior. It was Paul's testimony of a risen Savior. It was, it was James's testimony of a risen Savior. It was Matthias's testimony of a risen Savior, even though we don't hear anything about it, that changed hearts and thus changed the world. The resurrection was the theological foundation then, and I would dare say, if it were today, just as much our theological foundation Pastor, you need to be held to this accountability, to this truth. You must focus on preaching Jesus crucified and resurrected. Amen. I should be held accountable to that. And thank you for those of you that do. But if we made that our singular focus, I bet we would likely see the church having a much larger and healthier impact on our society today. Today. Brothers and sisters, this can feel like just a throwaway story. And like I said, many commentators toss it away. And many books toss it away. We know very little about this story. But, but what I see, folks, is, is a beautiful biblical method, principles on how to make decisions. Pray. Confirm it by Scripture. Use prayer-driven common sense. Pray again, and then trust the Holy Spirit's leading. And even more than that, within this throwaway text, I see a job description for an apostle that we never hear of again, but a job description that still applies, should still apply to all of your leaders and all of us as believers to this very day. That Jesus is alive. What is the application for our lives? Very simply this. How are we making decisions? Personally, how are we making decisions as a community? Prayer, scripture, common sense prayer, trust. How, what, what theological foundation are we being driven by? What, what theological foundation are we being led by? The truth that sets us apart from all other religious sects that Jesus is alive. And because of that truth, my brothers and sisters, you and I can have hope. You and I can have hope because Jesus is alive 
I can be a new creation. You can be a new creation. This church can be a movement for the kingdom of God in this very, very dark world. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. In this story that, that honestly I breeze through 99% of the time, I've never even thought to preach on it, Lord. I thank you for slowing me down this time. Lord, and in this message, I'm sharing all this with the members, but Lord, I see that you're calling me to be more accountable. Lord, I see in this message you calling me to be reminded of how to depend on you in decision-making. And I see in this that you're holding me accountable to remind me what my focus needs to be. Christ crucified and him living again. You living again as our Lord and Savior. So Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray that you will hold me accountable. And I pray for all our members as well because many of them are in positions of leadership. They're leaders in their families. They're leaders at their work. They're leaders in their homes. And Lord, may, may these foundational truths of the early church be the truths which we live by, the truths which we make decisions by, and the truths which we emphasize in our lives. And Lord, through our commitment to these foundational principles of Scripture, may people come to a saving relationship with you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.